Welcome to the Tudor Travel Show. It's wonderful to be here again with you today. Well, I don't know wherever you are in the world how you are being affected by the current coronavirus crisis. I know here in the UK we are into our second week of quarantine here. I know people have been ill and I know many more of us have had to completely look at how we run our lives on a day-to-day basis and make some big changes. And wherever you are in the world, I hope you're staying well and hopefully settling into your new routine. Although it's hard, I admit, as spring literally bursts forth outside my window, there's no prospect of getting out and about and visiting my beloved Tudor locations. So I've been thinking here at the Tudor Travel Guide about what I might do to be able to alleviate some of the tedium that comes along and some of the isolation that comes along with quarantine. Now I know many of you had to cancel travel plans for the forthcoming year and of course as I say there are many more of us who are stuck at home and so what I have decided to do is to create a very special virtual seven-day tour of some of the Tudor locations that people love to visit when they visit London. So I have just started to create this and I am hoping to take you on an adventure from the east to the west of London, from Greenwich over to the other side of London to Hampton Court and along the way visiting the Tower of London, St Bartholomew the Great, the Charterhouse, um, also the site of Whitehall, Westminster Palace, i.e. Westminster Hall, that survives, and Westminster Abbey, and of course, Hampton Court Palace along the way. So over the course of seven days, I am going to find a way, I hope, to be able to take you time travelling with me so that we may lose ourselves in some of these glorious locations. If you subscribe to my website via the homepage at www.thetudortravelguide.com then you will receive of course notification by email as soon as the first of these locations goes live and as I say I'm working on this as we speak folks so stay tuned. Well now to today's show and we have two wonderful guests as always. In my first interview, I will be speaking to Rachel Delman, who is from the University of York, and she is going to be talking to us about the Lost Palace of Collie Weston. Now, Collie Weston in Northamptonshire, of course, was associated with the great Margaret Beaufort. And Rachel, as you will hear, 
has probably researched Collie Weston more than most and so is able to take us on our own little time-travelling adventure to see if we can create that lost palace for ourselves. Of course, there is the TTG News Desk, which will take a sneaky peek through the veil of time as we find ourselves transported to Greenwich Palace on the 12th of April 1533, as Anne Boleyn is presented as Queen for the very first time. And then in the final interview of today's podcast, I'm going to be talking to Alden Gregory from Hampton Court Palace about what turns out to be a completely fascinating subject, and that is Tudor tents, their role and function. Now, as many of you will know, before the coronavirus outbreak turned everything upside down, Hampton Court Palace were due to launch a new exhibition around the field of cloth of gold, whose 500th anniversary is coming up in June. And Alden has been intimately associated with putting this exhibition together and particularly in the recreation of part of one of Henry's tents, which was present at the field. And I find out all about that research and about the role and function of Tudor tents. And as you can hear, I'm swept away by what I find out. So... Let's get stuck into the show. And I go over now to speak with Rachel Delman and allow her to introduce herself and her work. Welcome, Rachel, to the Tudor Travel Show. It's wonderful to have you here. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So I mentioned just before this conversation began that we are here to talk about that great house, Collie Weston. But before we dive into that, perhaps it would be good if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, in particular about your area of research interest. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm a historian of the late medieval and early Tudor period, um, and I'm based at the University of York, where I'm very lucky to be surrounded by an amazing array of buildings from the period. Um, and my research really focuses on women and their roles in sort of shaping and using both domestic and non-domestic architecture to express their power, agency and influence. Um, and I look at both England and Scotland during the period. So at the moment, um, I'm working on my first book, which is hopefully due to be published by Oxford University Press in the next year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm busy working on that at the moment, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, And this is based on my doctoral research, which I completed at Oxford in 2017. Um, And it looks at the physical and social space of five houses that were commissioned or headed by women during the period 1450 to 1550. Um, And those are Margaret of Anjou's Palace at Greenwich, Alice Chaucer's house at Uelm in Oxfordshire, um, Catherine Courtney um, and her castle at Tiverton in Devon, 
Margaret Pole's house at Warblington in Hampshire and, of course, Margaret Beaufort's palace at Collie Weston. Oh, that sounds like a book that is just right up my street, Rachel. It really oh. does. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So, yes, as you point out, Collie Weston, and this is why I'm talking to you, because I know that you have researched Collie Weston and it's a... You know, it was such an important house belonging to such an important character of the Tudor age. So I guess that that leads us into me perhaps asking, you know, why you've said a little bit, obviously, your interest in, in, in medieval women. What do you think about Margaret and her position in Tudor society? And, and you know, was there any particular reason why you wanted to research her and Collie Weston? For me, I actually stumbled across her by accident. Um, so back in 20, uh, 2011, sorry, when I was doing my Enfield um, dissertation, um, I wanted to write about people who um, commissioned and used landscapes, essentially sort of designs or ornamental landscapes, um, essentially large scale gardens. And I was looking through, um, I was in the library one day and I was looking through a volume um, of the Royal Commission on Historical Monuments in England. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's basically um, a collection, volumes of earthwork surveys. And I was looking at the Northamptonshire volume um, and I came across a page um, that had the earthworks of Collie Weston. And they're quite well preserved, even though there's not much to see above ground today, as we'll get on to. The earthworks are still there. And I thought, oh, this looks like a really interesting site. And at the time, as I said, I was interested in women's history as well. Um, and I found out that those gardens were created by Margaret Beaufort and that the archival evidence um, was just amazing, really. There are so many um, volumes of building and household accounts. Ooh, um, that sounds but, interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that. Mm. Um, but just piecing those two things together for me was really exciting. Um, and then the more I read about Margaret, the more I realised that, you know, the more there was to say, essentially. Why Collie Weston? Collie Weston is in Northamptonshire, isn't it? So why there? Yeah. What, what took Margaret there? Why did she build her, her great house in Northamptonshire? Yeah, it's a really good question because today if you drive through it just seems like a sort of charming, sleepy village and I think most people drive through through, and they've probably heard of it because of Collie Western Slate um, but most people you speak to don't know that there was one of the most significant palaces of early Tudor England there. Um, but yeah, Margaret acquired Collie Weston in 1487 um, so two years after her son was crowned king after the Battle of Bosworth Um, And it became her longest place of continued residence. Um, And Michael Jones, who's um, written about the palace as well, he's described it as a sort of satellite court in the Midlands. Mm. Um, So at this point, most of the royal palaces were sort of clustered in and around London. Um, And so we have to remember that the Tudor dynasty, um, as we know it today, was in its infancy at that point. Um, So it really allowed Henry and Margaret to keep an eye on things further north um, when when things were still a bit sort of um, shaky and uncertain.
Henry had been educated mainly in Wales as a child and he'd been in exile in France. Um, so for him, it was really important to assert his legitimacy through his mother's connections. Um, and Margaret's mother, so Henry's grandmother, Margaret Beecham, she actually had lived nearby at Maxey. And Margaret's half-siblings, the Sinjans and the Wells, were sort of notable regional elites in the area. So this really allowed Margaret to sort of cultivate these pre-existing um, connections, and it worked to the advantage of both mother and son. Um, there's also lots of evidence that Margaret really loved this area. Uh, when she was married to Henry Stafford, um, she lived at Bourne in Lincolnshire, and that was apparently um, an amazing property with um, rooftop gardens overlooking the fens. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it must have just been spectacular. Another one I would have loved to have seen in its heyday. Mm. Um, and she apparently wanted to be, um, well, she did want to be buried there, actually, in the 1470s, um, but obviously changed when she became king's mother and decided to go for the grander setting of, of Westminster Abbey. Um, but yeah, there is really so much evidence that she really loved this area. So it was kind of to the advantage of both mother and son. At mm, this I see. I see. That makes a lot of sense. And when you set off to do your research, what was what do you think was the primary question or maybe primary questions that you wanted to answer when you started tackling Collie Weston as a, as a location? So I guess what the palace looked like, um, just because it has now disappeared and it does feel like a bit of a, a jigsaw puzzle trying to put all the pieces together, um, and particularly what it looked like during Margaret's ownership, um, because it was previously owned by um, Rafe Lord Cromwell, who was uh, treasurer of England, and before that William Porter, um, who had originally built a house on the site. So I was curious to think about it um, as it was in, in Margaret's day and how she sort of used it to project her power and authority um, mm. as King's mother and as the head of her own household. Um, and I guess more broadly, as I've said, I'm interested in how it fits with um, other houses that were commissioned or headed by women during this period. And you tackled, uh, you've mentioned sources already, but I'm always curious to know, you know, what's particularly original sources did you mm. uncover during this process? It sounds like it was a treasure trove. So maybe you could yeah. talk to us a little bit more about those sources. Yeah, okay. So as I um, said, I started with the earthworks, so the, the Royal Commission survey that was done in the 1970s on the site. And those earthworks um, basically are a series of humps and bumps in a field that's now used for grazing sheep. Mm. Um, and they show what we think is the one of the enclosed gardens at the site, several sort of terraces and walkways um, and a couple of ponds as well, quite large-scale ponds that were enclosed within a deer park. So that's um, really valuable for showing what the landscape is like. And it's a really spectacular site. I know we're not there today, mm -hmm. um, but the house stood on the western edge of the village on a crest overlooking the, the Welland Valley beyond. Um, so you just get these really spectacular, far-reaching views um, and the, the gardens occupy the kind of undulating land that leads down to the river. Um, so the earthworks are really, really valuable for thinking about the landscape. Um, 
There's also um, several volumes, so nine volumes of building and household accounts, which are in the archives at St. John's College in Cambridge. And those, as you say, they're just a treasure trove of information. Um, some of them are 100 pages long. Oh, so, wow. wow, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it is amazing. So I spent um, a long summer transcribing those, um, and it was just such a pleasure to, to do it. I really enjoyed it. And those give a really a good idea of uh, not only the physical space and um, what Margaret was adding to the house, but also the um, sort of social space of the household. Do, um, do you... May I interrupt? Do you think you were the first person to transcribe those accounts? Um, other historians have used them, but in different ways. Um, I don't know if anyone else has transcribed them in full, but they're certainly just an amazing body of source material. And I think as far as I'm aware, I'm um, the only person that's done the sort of most detailed work on the house. It has been written about before. Um, but I really delved into them to try and piece together where each room was um, and how that related to the landscape and the sort of lived experience of the household as well. Were there any other sources that added to that knowledge? Um, yeah, there were. Um, so there are also two accounts that were written after Margaret's death. Um, so one was her funeral sermon that was written and given by her confessor and chaplain, Bishop Fisher. And that's a sort of eulogy. So he kind of, he describes her as the saintly housewife, Martha. So it's a very flattering account, but it's also quite helpful because he was a member of her household and Margaret and Fisher were very close. Uh, so it's very helpful for seeing the kind of daily rhythms and routines mm -hmm. of what she was up to. There's also an account that was written later in the mid-16th century by Henry Parker, Lord Morley. Parker was also a member of Margaret's household, so he was a cupbearer and served Margaret in the Great Hall. And again, that gives us an idea of what life was like in her household. Um, and it gives lovely sort of vivid descriptions of her sort of feasting in the Great Hall. The final one we have as well is the, the Somerset Herald, who recorded Margaret Tudor, so that's Margaret's granddaughter, mm. um, and her wedding progress in 1503 when she went to Scotland to marry King James IV. Um, and I'm sure we'll get onto this a bit later when we're talking mm. about sort of life of the palace. But the party, they stay at Collie Weston for two weeks during those celebrations. So that's a really valuable source for thinking about the sort of experience um, and, and what it would have been like um, having those celebrations in Margaret's household. I mean, put together, they sound a, just a fabulous array, rich array of sources. How wonderful for you to get yeah. the chance to delve into those and pull them all together. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, they've certainly kept me busy. <laughs> I bet it did. I bet it did. <laughs> uh, it's the kind of thing you need to do when you're locked away and you're self-isolating. Exactly, it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I want to say we are I'm going to ask you, of course, about, you know, trying to give us the big picture and to walk us through what the house looked like but before we delve into that I just you know was there anything you particular that you pulled out that really intrigued you or surprised you or fascinated you yeah that's a really good question actually I think just the sheer scale and magnificence of the palace I don't think I'd anticipated that when I first started my research so there's uh one entry in there um 
building accounts that describes the three courtyards of Collie Weston. So it gives you an idea of just how massive it was. Because a triple courtyard house is, is, you know, we often get a single or a double courtyard house, don't we, in the Tudor period. But a triple courtyard house is really, it really is of palace scale, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. And, And that really surprised me. I think when I came across that small entry, I thought, wow, this is, you know, really impressive. I think the other thing that I noticed is the fact that um, the building accounts are made over several years allows us to see the house evolving. Um, And we do get a sense of it as a kind of hub of frantic activity is a sort of building site Mm. for a lot of the period. And, you know, we often think about these houses as finished products. Um, but it's really amazing. It's such a privilege to be able to see the process of it changing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and to think about the ordinary people who were sort of working on it from from day to day as well. Um, so we know that the master mason came from Grantham, which is just north of Collie Weston. Um, and all the, the sort of workers came from within a four mile radius of the of the sites. Um, so the, the stonemasons were coming from the local quarry villages um, you get plumbers and joiners coming from sort of Peterborough and Stamford, which are nearby. So it's amazing to see all those those names of ordinary people that might otherwise go unrecorded in the accounts as well. well you, you answered a question. I wondered whether she would like ship people in from London. But no, it was very much supporting the local economy. Yeah, it was. I mean, you do get some references to things that have come from from further afield. So she does ship some tapestries in that come from from the port at Boston. So they're Flemish tapestries. So presumably have come over from from the low countries as well. But no, there is a, a really strong local workforce, which is really, really amazing to see. Maybe you could then take us to describe, you know, the house. So I love thinking about myself as a time traveller and if I was to you know suddenly transport myself back to Collie Weston 500 years ago and I I started you know walking down the road towards the palace then through the gatehouse you know what would I see can you describe to us Rachel in as you know more detail about what the place looked like yeah yeah so I'll try my best So, yeah, as you approach the gatehouse, we imagine it probably looked something like Margaret's foundation at Christ's College in Cambridge. The gatehouse shows full body figural representation of Margaret um, and she's clutching uh, a book and she's wearing her sort of her widow's uh, weeds or her vowess robes um, peering out over the, the, the streets in Cambridge. And she's surrounded by heraldic and dynastic iconography. So the, the Beaufort Yales are there, there are Tudor roses, there are portcullises. It's really this kind of um, wonderful sort of tapestry of, of colour proclaiming Margaret's illustrious connections. And what I might do here, just to interrupt for a moment, Rachel, is um, what I probably will do for the listeners is to put together a little blog based on the transcript of this conversation. And I'll include some images of the things that you are talking about, including that gatehouse. So people can nip over to the blog and the link will be in the description below and you can get some visuals as we're talking. Yeah, that would be wonderful because I think for me, um, it's just been so helpful to kind of reimagine the palace by looking at other buildings that Margaret was responsible for commissioning. So I think that would be a great thing for, for listeners. And so we're walking through under this gate house and, th- and then what? 
Yeah, so next to the main gate, there's also a prison and a council house. So those are really proclaiming Margaret's role as a regional dispenser of justice mm. in the Midlands. So we have to remember, even though this this was a kind of country retreat, it was also a political powerhouse. So those buildings are really proclaiming the fact that Margaret is a royal representative in the area. That's so interesting because, you know, I, I have, I've read a, about a lot of Tudor houses and I don't think I recall hearing of a prison next to the gatehouse, which really does mark this out as in a very particular way, as you describe. Yeah, exactly. It is particularly unusual. And we do have other features, actually. I'll just say those now. Um that are quite similar to the royal palaces of the period, again, showing Margaret's kind of unique status. Mm. So she has a library as well at Collie Weston, which is, is fairly unusual. And she also has a jewel house as well, um, which are, are sort of more common in the royal palaces. We also know that next to the main gate, there were workers' lodgings. So some of the masons were actually lodged on site. So for the particularly busy periods, they would have, have lived in those temporary lodgings. How long did it take to build the palace? Um, well, it was built in, in sort of various phases. So Margaret, as I say, she acquires it in 1487 um, and she does sort of small amounts um, to it. But the main kind of flurry of building activity um, happens just ahead of the royal progress in 1503. So there's a sort of sense that she's getting everything ready for um, this sort of Mm. big, big event, Mm. essentially. And so, so we, we're through into, I guess, from um, taking us back onto our journey in time. We're back in the, the courtyard. We've passed the gatehouse and the prison, etc. What What faces us then? It's a bit of a, a muddle from the household and building accounts. We know what's, well, I've managed to work out what's in each of the courtyards, but where they were positioned is slightly trickier to, oh. to work out. But we know there was a, a chapel that's described in one of the later accounts as equal to the king, her sons. What other features might you like to tell us about uh, that you uncovered through your research? So there was also a great hall, as we might expect, um, in the main courtyard um, and an accompanying parlour, which would have been at its upper end. So the Great Hall was kind of ceremonial space of a household uh, where there would have been uh, sort of feasting and and dining, obviously. And then the parlour provided a more sort of private or exclusive space for those sorts of activities and for sort of gaming and reading as well. Well, coming on to things like gaming and reading, that's kind of the everyday life in the palace. And I know some you were really keen, as you were saying, to find out more about how the palace was used and how Margaret used the palace. So what did you find out then about the rhythms of everyday life at Margaret's Collie Western? Piecing together the accounts of sort of Parker and Fisher um, and the building and household accounts, well, we get quite a vivid picture of, of life in Margaret's household. And we know that that piety um, was obviously at the the forefront of her mind. So Fisher says that she would rise early um, to pray in the mornings. 
Um, and also at the end of the day as well, she would she would pray in her chapel. We know that she also cultivated a, a reading circle at Collie Weston. So she was a, a patron of literature and a translator of texts. And several of the surviving books associated with her include the names of multiple members of her household. So we get a sense that she was really sort of disseminating ideas, circulating uh, particularly pious texts mm. as well. So that gives you some sort of glimpse into the into the social life of, of her household as well. She was also very active in the local community. Actually, that was something that really struck me when I was looking through the accounts, particularly in, in Stamford. She has close connections there um, and she supports several religious houses in the area. Um, she puts money towards the repair of bridges, church towers as well, as well as being very active on her own estates and keeping a close eye on things um, a bit closer to home. So she was obviously sort of very busy perambulating around the area. And you mentioned the courts and the prison. Did she preside over those or did she pres- did she appoint people to do that on her behalf? Yes, yeah, so it's it's a bit of both, really. So I, I don't think we can say that she didn't preside over those. I think that we have a tendency to sort of take agency away from, from women during this period a lot of the time. But the accounts suggest to me that she was very much a kind of watchful eye and a stage manager over the events of her household. So in in 1503, she um, presided over a, a dispute between town and gown in Cambridge, and that was sort of delegated to her arbitration from, from the Royal Council. So the Master of God's House, which later became Christ's College, uh, was called to Collie Weston to produce various documents. Um, and there were 14 councillors present at that time. So we get a sense that she's sort of presiding over quite a substantial council um, in order to to reach these decisions Mm. and represent royal authority in the region. Now, you mentioned, obviously, this great visit to 1503, which was the marriage procession. And I think that's how I really first Collie Weston first caught my eye when I was reading about that and I was going well where is this place but yeah. may you know this was obviously a big event in the lifetime of the house can you tell us more about it and what do we know from your research so um yeah as you say in 1503 um Margaret Cheezer and a courtly retinue arrived at Collie Weston ready for these these two week celebrations ahead of her marriage to James the fourth of Scotland And Margaret Beaufort records this event in her Book of Hours that she'd inherited from her mother. Um, So I like to see this as a sort of line of three Margarets, Margaret Beecham, Margaret Beaufort and Margaret Tudor. That's Um, wonderful, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's really lovely, this kind of um, sort of maternal or, or matrilineal connections. So, yeah, she she records the arrival of the party and we really get a sense that the household, as I said earlier, has been prepared for this event. So the chapel has been newly painted with an image of the Virgin Mary and the Trinity. The gardens, there are new walkways put in. There are obviously ponds and um, summer houses in the gardens as well. So we get a sense that the party definitely made use of the gardens during those two weeks. Mm. Um one of one of the um, details in her account says that she listened to her choir boys performing by the woodside on one occasion. 
So we can imagine that there was sort of musical entertainment outdoors as well, as well as lots of sort of hunting and hawking as well. We know, know Margaret loved hawking. So you may, might remind us who was there, because pretty much all the royal family were there, weren't they? With the exception, of course, I believe, if I remember rightly, Elizabeth of York by this time had died. Is that right? So yes. she wasn't there. Yes, that's right. Um, so her, her father, um, Margaret Tudor's um, father, and obviously M- Margaret Beaufort's son, Henry VII, was there. And there were also um, several members of the church as well, sort of senior members of the church, and all the sort of notables of the royal court. Interestingly for me, Catherine Courtney um, was there as well, because I, I look at her house in, in Tiverton in Devon, and mm. uh, so Edward the Fourth. Her daughter. So yeah, we get this sense of of quite a large company being there. In preparation for the event, Margaret actually builds a new lodging. And that takes 10 months to build um, at the cost of £450. So it's eye-wateringly expensive. (laughs) And that's devised to house Margaret Tudor and the, the main sort of members of the royal wedding party. Whereas some of the others stay actually at, at Maxi uh, nearby, which no one seems to have pointed out before. But that was something I noticed in, in the accounts was that she still uses her mother's residence at, at Maxi in order to, to emphasise these links to the area. So that's used as like an overspill property. Basically, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So there was a brand new wing or that was built specifically to house the royal party for this for this event? Yeah. So it was um, basically, yeah, a, a one side of one of the ranges, presumably the, the inner courtyards. And I think that would have overlooked from from what the documents say. I think it's positioning it would have overlooked the um, the deer park and the gardens. So oh. it would have offered spectacular views oh. over, over the to- wellens. Oh, to walk through that building. I know, <laughs> I know. Um, and it was also glazed as well. Um, so I was talking about the iconography of um, Christ's College earlier and the main gatehouse there. It was also glazed with um, iconography proclaiming the family's illustrious connections. Um, and there's this wonderful anecdote that I need to tell you, actually, um, from the from the accounts. And it says that the glaziers have mistakenly represented Margaret's yales, those mythical beasts, as antelopes. And then the next entry says that a certain John Delian of Peterborough, who's Margaret's favourite glazier, has been quickly called in to correct the problem. <laughs> so you can just imagine her walking into the courtyard and the fury at yeah. seeing that, you know, her, her iconography has been misrepresented on that building. Get him back now! <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think it's a really sort of lovely insight into um, oh. into how she sort of managed things and kept a close eye on everything as well. I always think it must have been a very bittersweet two weeks, of course, because at that point it was from Collie Western, wasn't it, that Margaret set off on the rest of the journey and said goodbye to her family, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So we we do get the sense that Margaret was very close with her um, granddaughter and that she sort of prevented her from going to, to Scotland too early. And that was probably rooted in the fear she had around her own early mm. pregnancy and traumatic experience of giving birth. So we do get this sense that she was very sort of protective over Margaret. She was also 
Margaret Beaufort was also very much a sort of, I've mentioned this word a few times, but very much a stage manager over this spectacle. Um, and as the party leave, Margaret Beaufort allows only those who are related to Margaret Tudor by blood into the Great Hall um, mm. to bid her farewell. So there is this big emphasis on family connections and she's given a, a book of hours by her father as well. So, yeah, it, it must have been... I don't know. I think, you know, they must have been delighted that the infant dynasty was doing so well. But at the same time, we can't leave out that sort of human element of history. It, it must have been hard to, to say goodbye after after mm. those two weeks. So maybe I could just ask, were there any other events or any other significant um, royal progresses or visitors to Collie Weston that we should remember? Yeah, that's that's another good question, actually. Obviously, as I've said, the main one is 1503. That's the one that really stands out to us in the evidence. And that's the one that we see this kind of flurry of works on the palace happen for. After that, Margaret's house, I think, becomes a bit more of a sort of spiritual retreat. There's more of a focus on her sort of uh, her piety. She creates a new set of lodgings or rather a new set of apartments for herself and there's strong emphasis on on views over the chapel from those that said we shouldn't think about her sort of hiding away necessarily you know she's still one of the most important people at this time and she was still very active in the local community mm. Um, and perhaps one more thing to note is that um, Elizabeth of York, the Queen, she had her own chambers at Collie Weston as well, which were connected to um, her own private garden via a lockable stairway from from those rooms. Oh, that's lovely detail. Oh, I love that mm. detail, Rachel. <laughs> that's gorgeous. Mm. But of course, all good things come to an end. And Margaret died in 1509. Can you tell us maybe, I don't think she died at Collie Weston, did she? No, she didn't. So, so what? When did she? When was she last at Collie Weston? And can you tell us about kind of her demise, a little about her demise, but also perhaps more importantly, the demise of the house. So the accounts take us up to sort of fifteen oh seven, so two years before her death, and we get the sense that she was more sort of London, London centric. The house, sadly. Well, it has a bit of a, a potted history after Margaret dies in 1509. It goes to um, Henry VIII's bastard son, Henry Fitzroy. I'm not sure what Margaret would have thought of that, given her strong <laughs> emphasis yes. on uh, lineage and dynasty. Um, she, maybe she was turning in her grave. Mm. At that I point. can imagine that being the case, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, Elizabeth I as well, um, she obviously later owns the house there isn't a sense that, that she's there very much, but she does build a banqueting house in the gardens. So again, we're getting that sense of how spectacular the, the setting was and how wonderful these, these gardens were. By the 17th century, it's uh, sort of passed into the hands of, of the Heath family. And Edward Heath is responsible for sort of dismantling it, um, as it's referred to in the accounts. And then the Tryon family also built a later house on the site. Um, and it seems that they do a pretty good job of kind of dis redistributing all the materials because the only thing we have today is a, a sundial from the later house and um, a, a wall from, from the 17th or 18th century as well. As you walk through the village, um, 
you do occasionally see quite impressive stones in some of the the walls and buildings um and I, I do wonder whether some of those materials have been kind of redistributed from the palace. And maybe it just might be worth saying, of course, that, you know, most of the area where the palace is is now under people's back gardens. So you can't actually go and see anything. But there is yeah. the local parish church, which has a wonderful doorway from the original building before Margaret. Is that right? It does. So it shows um, William Porter, who originally built a house on the site in the early 15th century, around 1415. It shows uh, his arms above above the church mm. and um, the the chapel just on the, the south of the church, which was Margaret's chapel, is now um, used as a site for um, kind of local displays. So during the, the Collie Western weekend back in August, there was a, a wonderful display put together by the residents, which told you all about Margaret and the palace and um, the, the dig as well and the, the kind of search to, to find it. So I think they're planning a few other displays in there. So it's definitely worth going into the church if you're um, passing through Collie Western. It's amazing what you can find hidden away in English parish churches. <laughs> it's mm, always, it really is. It's always worth a look there's a top tip for anybody visiting England if you go to any visit uh, any village or town make sure you go to the church because you may well be amazed by what you find mm, definitely I definitely agree with that thank you I think that draws our discussion to a close thank you so much Rachel for sharing all of your research into what was clearly an epic Tudor house mm, thank you it's been a pleasure fascinating location such a shame that it's gone but thanks to the work of people like Rachel we can bring it alive once again in our imagination okay well now it is time for a change of tempo and of course as ever we're heading over to the TTG news desk to find out just what news has been breaking in the Tudor month of April Welcome to the April O'Clock News with your newsreader, Robert Cole. Here are the Tudor headlines for the month. Anne Boleyn is presented as Queen at Greenwich Palace. James Stewart, new heir to the Scottish throne, is born at Linlithgow Palace. Henry VIII's Act of Succession is passed in England. And Henry VII dies at Richmond Palace. Good day. And now for our top story. Following on from the announcement made yesterday by King Henry VIII that Anne Boleyn, formerly Marquess of Pembroke, should be recognised as his Queen by the Royal Council, the latter attended Easter Eve Mass at Greenwich Palace this morning in full royal estate. It has been reported that the King intends for the new Queen to be crowned after Easter 
but this sudden turn of events has caused consternation in some quarters, with the imperial ambassador Eustace Shapwee pointing out that technically the king now has two wives, and has proceeded in this matter without waiting for a dispensation or sentence of any kind. There is no word of what Catherine, Dowager Princess of Wales, feels about this sudden turn of affairs. We can now cross over to our roving reporter, Bess Cavendish, who is at Greenwich Palace and was witness to this morning's events. Bess, can you tell us what unfolded at the palace this morning? Hello, Robert, and thank you. I am here just outside Greenwich Palace, beside the River Thames, having just witnessed the most extraordinary scene here this morning. As you rightly say, with the news that just yesterday, His Grace ordered the Royal Council to recognise Anne Boleyn as his Queen, there was, as you might expect, a hum of expectation from the crowds gathered in the Queen's public chambers and among the congregation who had come together in the Chapel Royal this morning to hear the traditional Easter Eve Mass. Of course, such holy days are usually attended by the monarch and many wondered if this would be Anne Boleyn's first opportunity to be publicly presented as Queen. And we were not disappointed, Robert, for at the appointed hour, the new Queen of England emerged from her privy apartments, wearing a gown of cloth of gold frieze, which of course is only permitted to be worn by royalty. She was bedecked with jewels, with the train of her gown being carried by Mary Howard, daughter of the Duke of Norfolk, and of course, soon to be daughter-in-law of the king himself. The new queen was attended by a train of 60 ladies. Some have exclaimed that is more than they ever saw attending upon Catherine of Aragon. Anyway, together the train processed with great solemnity to the Chapel Royal here at Greenwich. This was a great shock to many, wasn't it? After all, there have been no official announcement from the palace that the king had married Anne Boleyn, even though it is widely known that he has actively been pursuing a divorce from his first wife for some time. You are absolutely right. I think the feeling among those present was one of astonishment this morning. I don't think people saw this coming, even though there have been rumours circulating at court and in London more generally, that His Majesty secretly married Anne some months ago. However, just this morning, now that this is a fait accompli, I am hearing confirmation from an unnamed source that the marriage did in fact take place towards the end of January, and that only a very select number of witnesses were present. They were sworn to secrecy, as the king's counsellors pressed forth in trying to obtain a divorce from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. So why this turn of events now? Well, there has been no official confirmation, but again one of my sources, this time within the Queen's household, has dropped hints that the Queen is already pregnant, and if that is the case, 
then of course His Majesty will want to move as swiftly as possible to ensure that this child is born to an anointed Queen and that there can be no question of its legitimacy. Ah, I see. Well, thank you for that report, Bess. It does seem that we will all have something to look forward to, as a coronation now looks to be imminent. And on that happy note, that concludes this month's TTG News Desk, and we will return in May. But for now, it's back to the 21st century. Happy days. Well, it's wonderful to be able to enjoy a moment of celebration with Anne before May hits, which of course is always a bit of a tense time in the Tudor calendar for anybody who loves Anne Boleyn. However, just on the note of Anne Boleyn, I wanted to give a shout out to Talking Tudors, um, run by Natalie Gruniger, who has a very special uh, Berlin month running through actually May and June. And she's going to be featuring speakers every week through those two months, focusing on different aspects associated with Anne and her life. And in fact, yours truly, I believe, is part of the first episode which will be going live in June and I have already recorded my conversation with Natalie about Anne Boleyn's coronation procession from the Tower to Westminster. Another happy time. So make sure that you tune in for that. And if you don't already subscribe to the Talking Tudors podcast, then you can search for Talking Tudors on Podbean or iTunes or Spotify. All right, so we're going to have another change of tempo and this time I am going to be in conversation with Alden Gregory from Hampton Court Palace. And as before, I'll let Alden introduce himself and his fascinating research. And let's dive into the weird and wonderful world of Tudor tents. Hello, Alden. Welcome to the Tudor Travel Show. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. That's wonderful. So, as I was saying just before we came into this conversation, I believe you are curator of historic buildings at Historic Royal Palaces. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that entails. You sound like you have my dream job, so go make me envious, <laughs> Alden. <laughs> I do have to pinch myself every day when I come into work. Um, yes, I'm part of a team of uh, curators who work for Historic Royal Palaces. Um, historic Royal Palaces is the independent charity that looks after... Hampton Court Palace, the Tower of London, Kensington Palace, the Whitehall Banqueting House, Kew Palace and Hillsborough Castle in Northern Ireland. Um, and as a buildings curator, I, I, I sort of have two hats on, really. I'm, I'm part of the team that looks after the buildings from a conservation and maintenance point of view. Um, but I'm also an architectural historian, so I, so I research our palaces as well. Oh, now that sounds absolutely glorious. Um, I it am... It's a real treat. I am envious. Just the the best Tudor house in the world at your fingertips. Oh, I send shivers down my spine. We're spoiled. <laughs> anyway, today um, we are going to be actually talking about a specific research project that you've been undertaking over the last several, is it months or years? Uh, years, really. 
Yeah. Right. Okay. So, of course, as many people will know, it's the 500th anniversary of the Field of Cloth of Gold this year, and there has been a big research project underway uh, leading up to this summer's events. And I particularly was interested in in one aspect of that, and that is the recreation of the, I believe, te- Henry VIII's temporary palace, or or part of that tent. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so we've been doing a, a research project about Henry VIII's tents, which I suppose might seem a little bit odd given that we've got six amazing palaces to look after. Um, but as you say, it's the 500th anniversary of the Field of Cloth of Gold this year, and we were, uh, were planning a whole lot of celebrations for that because um, we have the, that wonderful painting of the Field of Cloth of Gold hanging at Hampton Court. Mm. Um, and so we started looking at Henry VIII's tents. I mean, as I said in, in the introduction, I'm an architectural historian, and I I see these tents as real architectural structures. Um, they are they are buildings, mm. really. Um, and um, so we, we spent a bit of time looking at, uh, at, at how they were made, what they represented, how Henry in particular, Henry VIII in particular, used them, um, how they were used at the Field of Cloth of Gold in particular, mm. um, to try and to try and bring a bit of a, a bit of context, a bit of colour into the story of the Field of Cloth of Gold, and explore it from a, a slightly different direction. So ultimately, am I right in saying the ultimate aim was to actually recreate one or part of these tents at Hampton Court Palace this year? Was was that your original aim? Absolutely. Um, um, I mean, hopefully, uh, your, your listeners will probably know that we're talking uh, in the middle of the coronavirus mm. pandemic, so plans are changing all the time, but, um, but hopefully... At some point in the future, we'll be able to reveal the tent we've been working on. So we were lucky enough to have uh, research funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council to to work on this project. And that allowed us um, some funding to do a piece of experimental archaeology that was led by my colleague here, Dr. Charles Farris. Um, And so we have have built part of this tent already. We have have a sort of prototype version of the tent that exists. We've we've been working with a, a wonderful team of tent makers at a company called LPM Bohemia. Um, to, to to try and reconstruct a little part of one of Henry VIII's tents. Um, and some of your listeners might uh, know of the drawings of tents that were designed for Henry VIII that survive in the collection of the British Library. Mm. There, there are three or four of those drawings. There's a, there's a, uh, a quite well-known drawing of a red tent mm. amongst them, um, which is which is a wonderful structure. It's, it's covered in Henry's heraldic beasts or poking off the top of, the, of it and and the duet montre uh, motto running around and the sort of balance, the fringe around the, the edge of the tent. So it's clearly a, a design for a tent for Henry VIII. And, and, and we've taken that, um, that tent to draw and we've, and we've tried to turn it into a three-dimensional, one-to-one scale um, uh, part of Henry's tent. I mean, we, uh, for, for those of you who know that drawing, you'll know that it's, it's, um, it's a huge tent made up of lots of individual, uh, what they call hails, which is a sort of rectangular marquees and, and roundhouses all connected together by trezances which are the corridors between them. I, I think there's um, about half a dozen trezances, uh, mm. half a dozen uh, hails in that tent and um, uh, probably a dozen, a dozen roundhouses connected to it. So it's a, it's a vast structure but we, we have uh, recreated a part of it and, uh, and we're hoping that over the coming year we're going to plan we'll be able to finish that off and um, decorate it and add the sort of beautiful uh, ornament and and, um, embellishments to it that will really make it feel like one of the 
how how wonderful and so maybe we could just come back to you know what it what it looks like now how far you've got with it right now and where we where we might see that eventually but i'd quite like to just rewind the research process if i may and 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 i guess those drawings were part of where you started with this research but how you know can you talk about the different um research sources that you used and how you brought those together yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, you're absolutely right to say that, um, that those drawings were sort of the inspiration for this in the first place. I mean, seeing seeing those drawings in flesh and seeing them reproduced in books, I started thinking, you know, with my architectural historian hat on, you know, what what is going on inside these tents? What what are they for? Why why are they so large? Mm. Um, and um, and I realised that actually there is there is a lot of source material for for Tudor royal tents. Um, the, the the royal household had an office within it called the Office of Tents um, and, and later from the 1540s it was combined with the Office of Revels so it becomes the Office of Tents and Revels and certainly from the 1540s onwards um, whilst the Office of Tents and Revels is under the control of a man called Sir Thomas Cawarden the, the, the records that they keep are, are really quite well preserved ah, right. um, they, um, they survive now split between the Surrey History Centre in Woking and the Folger Shakespeare Library in um, Washington, D.C. And, um, and there are a few um, sort of outlying bits of that, that uh, uh, of the records of, of the Office of Tents that survive also at the British Library and at the National Archives. Um, so between those four sources, there's a huge amount of archival material that really uh, describes, describes how tents were made um, these are all the accounts of, of the people that were making the tents for Henry VIII. Mm. But through them, you get a real sense of the scale, of the materiality, of the colour, um, of the, the interiors. The um, so you can you, through that you can begin to sort of um, bring together a, a, a really rich picture of these tents. And I should say as well, we've, we've been talking specifically about tents, but but the research project that I did also looked at another class of buildings called timber lodgings. Um, which I think are quite specific to, the, to that kind of late medieval period and to, and to the early 16th century. And these are, these are small timber buildings, well, mm. some of them not so small, they're actually timber, <laughs> quite impressive structures, that are connected with the tents um, and were designed to be um, sort of relocatable wooden buildings that, 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 um, uh, that Henry could, could use, particularly uh, on military campaign, actually. And then the, the, the final sort of... Um, source of information, I suppose, is an art historical sources. If you, if you start looking for tents in paintings of the period or in tapestries of the period, you'll, you'll find them everywhere. Um, they're, you know, such sort of ubiquitous images within, within landscapes, particularly any of those history paintings that show either scenes from ancient mythology or, 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 um, or more contemporary scenes from, from uh, warfare and, mm. uh, you know, the, the Battle of the Spurs. So, Alden, you mentioned about one of the first questions you had, and actually, I thought it was a really, really excellent question. Is is these huge tents? And I and forgive me, I forget the names of the different parts of the tents that you used, but it's a great question. Why so big? What on earth was going on in there? Um, did you get to the bottom of that through your research? Do you have a better sense of why they were so large? Yeah, I think to some extent. Um, 
I mean, ultimately, it comes down to that that display of magnificence that Renaissance monarchs relied on to demonstrate their power and their wealth and their sophistication. Um, you know, a, a huge tent says, "I'm I'm a powerful person." Um, but I think also the, the the research project that we ran we called portable palaces um, for a very good reason, and I think that these these were portable palaces. Yeah. When when you look at the the um, the lists of, of the rooms that are within Henry VIII's tents, and you can get to that through, um, there's a wonderful inventory made in 1542 um, that I think is probably recording the tents actually that went on that 1541 progress to York. Right. And there's a, there's a list there of, of the painted canvas cloths that were made to decorate the interiors of, of Henry's tent. Um, and that and through that list, you can see the names of the different rooms, and you see that his tent has a great chamber, it has a privy chamber, it has a withdrawing chamber, it has a page's waiting chamber. There, are, there are bed chambers for the king and the queen, so uh, oh, this... for, for Catherine Howard as well. And in fact, she has her own privy chamber within the tent as well. Wow! They have, they have stall closets. I mean, this is this is glamping to the highest. It really is, degree. isn't it? <laughs> um, it really is. Um, but the interesting thing is, and, and, and one of the one of the questions that I, I tried to sort of get an answer to, and I never really got to the bottom of it, but there's very little evidence for Henry and Catherine Howard on that, on that 1541 um, progress, or, or on any other camping expedition they have. There's very little evidence of them actually sleeping overnight in their tent. Right. So they have they have bed chambers in there, mm. um, but I think those are, are probably those sort of ceremonial spaces that are used during the day. You know, a bed chamber is a space in which you can hold meetings. Um, as well as the space in which you you sleep, and if you look at the 1541 progress, which you all know very well, is, is mm. incredibly well documented, certainly mm. in terms of where the court is staying because of all of the things that Catherine Howard was getting up to. Mm. Um, you know, they're not they're, there's no record of them staying in tents. Indiscretions don't happen in tents; they happen in houses. It was very well documented, wasn't it? And there was always a, a, a major property, and of course, the king and the queen would always, you know, take precedence and take over the property. So. Exactly. But I think I think perhaps what is happening there is, I mean, obviously the the great progresses of of Elizabeth the first when all of her courtiers are bankrupting themselves, creating huge new suites of state apartments for her to use in their houses. You know that's not really happening in Henry VIII's reign. I don't think to such a degree. Mm. Um, courtiers are are preparing their houses for Henry to to come to, but but they're not building suites of state apartments for him. So I think he's taking his own suite of state apartments with him. In effect, I think he's. He's spending the night sleeping in their houses, but probably pitching his huge tent in their in their gardens or parks in order that during the day when he's when he's entertaining, when he's receiving visitors, guests, ambassadors, he has a has a suite of state apartments in which to receive them so that he has spaces that replicate the, the spaces that he had at Hampton Court Palace or, or any of his upgrade palaces. Well, that's just, honestly, Alden, that's wonderful. I've never really thought about this before, but that makes perfect sense, of course, because all the progresses happened in the summer, didn't they? So what's more pleasant mm. than a lovely summer English garden or park? And, of course, the Tudors lived outdoors. They did a lot of things yeah. outdoors. So it just makes perfect sense. Yes, I mean, it's interesting. That 1541 progress, the, the Office of Tents, uh, accounts that I've, I've spoken about really documented in an interesting way because you can see how many tents are being taken with them. Um, I've already mentioned that list of, of the um, the painted cloths that uh, are mm. made to to, um, to furnish the tents. So it's pretty clear that they are taking these big tents up, up there with them. And there is one account, um, one description of Henry in his tent on that 1541 progress where they stop at Hatfield Chase for a hunting 
party and um, and Henry entertains the French ambassador in his tent. Mm. Um, so you see there, perhaps the tent is being used a little bit like a hunting lodge. And I'm minded also, just while we're talking about that progress, I'm fairly sure that when they arrived at Lincoln, there is some description of them arriving in one set of clothes and then going and getting changed and kind of appearing in another set of clothes. I can't remember whether that had anything to do with tents or not, but um, no, I wonder you, if it did. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They get changed in the tent. Um, and they, put, they, they pitch the tent right on the edge of the, the liberty of, of Lincoln. Mm. Um, and I think there's something interesting there about the way, about what tents represent and and the way they use the fact that Henry pitches his tent right on the edge of, of the boundary of, of Lincoln. It's sort of, you know, tents are interesting, ob- interesting things because they, they kind of manipulate a landscape in a way. They can be, they can be quite sort of um, friendly structures in mm. the sense that they can say, well, I'm just sort of passing through, it's ephemeral, I'm respecting your, your boundaries. But they can also be quite aggressive structures as well. You know, they're, they're kind of invading and, and they're, they're creating your claim over a space so I think I think that I, I think Henry uses his tents to to deliver messages as well and, and of course tents are very martial structures they are they are um, you know they're, they're the um, the equipment of an army so um, I think I think there's a there's a lot of sort of um, uh, of, of messaging that goes with those tents and, the, and where they're pitched and, and, and the way they're pitched that's really interesting. And, and I suppose um, the other question, and you've, you've partly answered this, but I'm just going to push to see if there's any, any more juicy information that you can share with us about the interiors. You've talked about the different rooms and the chambers. In all those accounts, did you get a sense of how the interiors were furnished, decorated? Well, the, furniture, the furniture itself is actually one of the things that we found it most difficult to, to get any evidence for and I think that's possibly because actually there isn't really a they're not making camping furniture as such they're just taking the furniture from the palaces mm. which which in a lot of cases is designed to be movable anyway because they're constantly moving furniture around the palaces so you know collapsible beds folding folding tables that sort of thing <clears throat> but the um, I think that that list of painted painted canvases for the interior of Henry's tent is quite interesting and I might just read through mm. a few of them to give you a sense of the sort of colour um, uh, of these spaces, and it's it's really kind of vibrant, almost garish mm-hmm. colour scheme. So, so 1541, the king's bedchamber in his tent on that progress, um, is described. The painted canvases are described as um, having antique work of gold and other colours on a ground of red, blue, and moray, which is purple. The king's withdrawing chamber is painted with roses and the HR monogram in gold, um, on on a background of blue and other colours. Uh, the corridor between the two is a, a green background with fretwork painted in stone colour and antique work on top of that. The, the king's privy chamber is a white background with blue fretwork and roses, fleur-de-lis and HR monogram in gold. Um, and the queen's bed chamber, that's, a, that's also a white canvas garnished with red, green and other colours. Uh, and, and the list goes on. I mean, every single room is a, is a different colour and every single room, I think, might, to the modern taste, give us a bit of a headache. Yeah. Um, but and this this is actually quite a I mean it's interesting because this this is decorated in painted cloths but but mm. but you know quite often they're hung with tapestry or they're hung with cloth of gold. Mm. There's, there's a wonderful description uh, written by a German visitor who who visits Henry VIII's tent um, that's pitched out just outside Tournai in 1513 when Henry invaded France. And again, you know, this is a, a military campaign, but he takes one of these huge tents with with lots of different chambers, and the German visitor says. It's like visiting a small town, um, and, he, and he walks through it. Every single room is hung with cloth of gold, and, and it's 
red and gold and, and vibrant and there's, there are buffet tables covered in plate you know shining and mm. um you know it's, it's really kind of palatial and rich and and um and it's showing off and and, and it's showing henry it's power through his through his wealth i I love the fact that there's so much detail that survives from the interiors and, and you know, the how they looked, the decoration. That's just gorgeous. <laughs> and it, and it just gives you, it gives you a completely different sense, I think, of, of those occasions. That 1541 progress, which we all know so well, I think, mm. you, get a, you get a slightly different perspective on it when you start looking at the, at the tents they're taking and the, way, and the logistics of it and the way they're transporting things backwards and forwards. And the ad hoc nature of it, actually. Those, those painted canvases for the interior of the tent are made in York, and they're made by by York painters. So, ah. so clearly, they've they've sort of they've decided they need to redecorate the inside of this tent <laughs> on the go, and, and the, the accounts also um, demonstrate the way in which um, people from the office of tents are constantly riding backwards and forwards between between wherever the king is on that progress and London in order to get things that they've forgotten. Oh, that's um, just they're, brilliant. They're, because they're also they're also involved in the rebels. They're involved in in the masks. Mm. There's a moment I think when the the court gets to South Yorkshire um, and clearly Henry has suddenly decided that there's a particular mask he wants to have performed. So the Office of Tents and Rebels have to send people on horseback all the way back to London to pick up the masking costumes for that particular mask. (laughs) You can can hear them swearing. Yes. And did these masks get recreated and put on in the tents, do you think? Or do you think that was they were in the adjacent houses? Do we have any evidence? I, I really don't know. I don't think there's any evidence for that, but there's, there's no reason to think they might have been in mm. the tents. Although the, the, the tents are not huge spaces. Mm. Um, I think I think the, the larger tents you're looking at maybe sort of 50 foot long by by um, 30 foot wide. For, for that sort of tent right. that you see, um, mm. you know, there's, there's designs for tents that we've already seen, there's kind of multi-room um, mm. tents. Mm. Although some tents, of course, in this period could be absolutely massive. Uh, the, I mean, the it's not in the English tent, but the French tent that Francis I erected at the field of Cross of Gold in 1520, according to eyewitness descriptions of it, was 120 feet tall in the centre, which is, um, I mean, if you know the Tower of London, that's about the same height as the White Tower at the Tower of London. Crikey. It's an extraordinary structure. No wonder it got uh, blown away. And it got blown away, as you say, yes. <laughs> Um, they they overdid themselves there. And, they um, did, didn't they? It's like just a pair of sails, basically. Uh. <laughs> yes. Well, and yes, and, and it was it was erected by sailors, which sort of gives you a sense. Really? Oh, um, that's brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant. Okay, well, that's just fabulous. I'm grinning from ear to ear. I've I've learned so much, but we must talk about the translation of all this into what's happening at Hampton Court. And as you quite rightly point out, of course. As this goes out, um, we will still, I'm sure, be in the middle of a, a global pandemic with the coronavirus. So plans have been shifting and changing. But what can you tell us about when this does happen, what people are likely to be able to see both around the tent? But also there's more than that going on, isn't there, at Historic Royal Palaces and at Hampton Court? Yes, we, we would hope to have the tent up at some point in, in the future. But I will have to say, just stay tuned. Um we, we've been planning an exhibition uh, about the Field of Cross of Gold. Uh, again, we're delaying the opening of the exhibition, given the current advice from Public Health England around social interaction. Mm. Uh, but we, we hope to open it later this year, if all goes to plan. Um, I guess all I can really say at this stage is, is that we'll be sharing um, our updated plans with 
everyone on social media channels so mm. follow us on uh, at historic Royal palaces on instagram and at hrp palaces on twitter for um, for the latest updates on, on our plans around the exhibition and everything else and keep an eye on our website which is hrp.org.uk as well um, but hopefully fingers crossed mm. we'll be able to bring you a, a wonderful exhibition what, what's going to be some of the items in the exhibition that people can look forward to seeing? Well, um, we've talked about tents already and, and those drawings of, of tent designs uh, that we've mentioned will be in the exhibition along with, with that great painting of the Field of Cloth of Gold. Mm. Um, but we've got some really exciting things coming. We've got a, a wonderful tapestry coming from a private collection that's never been on display before that shows Francis I watching two wrestlers a lot of your listeners will know about the, the I famous do. story of Henry and Francis wrestling at the Field of Cloth of Gold, and this tapestry this, this shows Francis watching two wrestlers. Uh, and a particularly interesting tapestry as well, because in the, in the top left-hand corner you see a, 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 a black trumpeter, which gives a little, a little indication of the, the sort of diversity of the, the French and English courts. Mm. Well. So wonderful stories there. Um, I mean, what I'm, what I'm really excited about this exhibition is, is the great variety and diversity of the objects we've got. So we've got some wonderful paintings, um, including paintings by Holbein. Uh, we've got goldsmith's work, we've got beautiful illuminated manuscripts, we've got arms and armour. Um, so a real a real treasure trove oh. of, of objects from, from both the English and the French court. Oh my so, goodness. So I continue to keep my fingers crossed that we can show it to Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, we're all going to have to be really patient, but the picture yeah. that you've just painted is going to leave us something to look forward to when the worst Absolutely. of this is passed and we can all get back all yes exactly it sounds it sounds just wonderful and loads of fabulous pieces to see that um, I guess most of us or many of us will never have seen before so that's really going to be exciting and, and it's within um, historic rooms at Hampton Court Palace in, within the rooms that the Cardinal Wolsey had built for himself at Hampton Court, so a really special space to bring those objects into as well. The, um, the, the man who orchestrated it all, of course. <laughs> indeed, I mean, we've, we've got one or two objects in place already in, in the exhibition as we've started to build it, and it's, it's given me a real tingle down my spine to see some of those things in those rooms. Oh, I can't wait. I'm tingling already. Um, well, I just have to thank you so much. You have really opened my eyes to the fact that to the world of Tudor tents, which had always just been in the background somewhere, you know, this kind of thing that wasn't very sexy or glamorous. I'm, I now really get a sense of, of how these were mini palaces. And so well, thank I'm you so I've much. Been able to make tents sexy for you. Yeah, they are. They are now sexy. Are. <laughs> Officially. <laughs> Your work is done here, Alden. Um, I feel like I've achieved something. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you mentioned the various Historic Royal Palaces website, and obviously we should all keep our eye on that, and we can yeah. we can stay tuned for updates on, on what's happening. But that just all remains for me to say thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Alden Gregory from Historic Royal Palaces as much as I did. I really had my eyes open to the wonderful world of Tudor tents. So now we do have to be patient and look forward to that exhibition that will be coming, well, let's wait and see. But do keep your eyes on the Historic Royal Palaces website and, of course, follow Historic Royal Palaces on social media to keep up with all the latest. 
And while we're talking Field of Cloth of Gold, do remember that my virtual summit, Field of Cloth of Gold 500, is taking place over the weekend of the 9th and 10th of May. And there is a fabulous lineup of speakers to enjoy over those two days, experts in their field. Now, it is entirely free to join and registration is now open. So I will include a link in the description associated with this podcast. And if you follow the link, you'll be able to reserve your free spot. And I look forward to seeing you there. So that's all for this month's Tudor Travel Show. I hope you've enjoyed the show today and join me next month when I go touring Elton Palace to find out about its Tudor history. Until then, I hope wherever you are in the world, you are staying safe and well. Until next time, my friends, happy time travelling. Thank you.